0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zacharin, assistant editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Anthony Wilkes, head of audio and video at the London Review of Books. We're discussing the LRB, his work there, and the future of audio and digital for quality literary content. Anthony, thanks for joining me today on the New Books Network.
1: Thank you, Caleb. It's a pleasure to be on the show.
0: Of course. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of the LRB and you know, all the podcasts and the, uh, the, 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 articles and basically everything that the LRB does. It's just a great, I'm sure all of our listeners are familiar with the LRB, uh, and <laughs> I've either written for it or hope to hope to write for it someday. Uh, but before jumping into the LRB, I was just wondering if you could just talk about what inspired you to pursue a career in audio and video production. Uh, and how did you get started in the field?
1: Well, bit of a roundabout way i guess like many people who work in in publishing or or any fields perhaps these days um so i started off wanting to be an actor actually um i went to university studied english at university then i went to drama school um in london and i was hoping to be an actor um but when i finished drama school uh i just wanted to get away from uh london and the and the and the pressure of actually trying to be an actor and I actually didn't really feel like i was a very good actor at that point so um i moved away from london i saw a job advertised to teach at charles university in prague and i thought brilliant i'll go to prague i'll just get away from um the london because it's been such an intense training um and uh, that seemed like a, a great opportunity to to get away um so I went to Prague and was teaching at Charles university. They wanted someone just to teach in English, um, which was terrific. Um, so I taught stuff that I was familiar with, you know, literature and and plays and stuff. Um, but i sort of felt, I still wanted to act. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking for opportunities while I was in Prague to do acting and, uh, I, um. I did some acting in some short films. And then someone mentioned that there was uh, auditions going on in Prague for a feature film that was being made there called Solomon Kane, which uh, was this uh, French-English um, fantasy film based on the Robert E. Howard novels. Um, and uh, I went, to, went along to some sort of open auditions for that, just for some extra parts, and I ended up getting quite a, a decent part in it. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the film Solomon Cain. <laughs> um anyway, uh, it's uh, it's uh, in the in the film there's this sort of central family which is going on a, it's set in the 17th century, and they have this sort of pilgrim family going to the US or trying to get there from from Norfolk in England. And anyway, and along the way they encounter all these kind of uh problems, demons, um and, and the hero Solomon Cain. Anyway, I was I got a part in this film and it shot in Prague and I thought okay I'll come back to London now I've been in a film maybe I could be an actor after all and and I got back to London and I was sort of waiting for this film to be released really so that I could try and I didn't have an agent at this point and I was you know hoping that that would sort of launch me in some way and help me get an agent but it just took ages and ages for the film to come out so in the meantime I um got a job working for this um Publisher in North London called Lionsdown, which publishes advertorial uh, supplements in newspapers um, on all kinds of subjects, like you know business turnaround or call centers or whiskey or just anything that they feel like they can sell advertising for. And I, um, I got a job there just as an editor, editing the supplements, writing these you know editorial uh quote marks um pieces uh just to sort of fill out the supplement which was mainly just ad ads you know um and uh that was okay and obviously i was sort of waiting there to be an actor and then this, this film came out while i was working there and um it didn't really go anywhere for me to be honest i i realized that You know, actually, I didn't really have it in me to be a professional actor. This was going to be my one moment in this film, um, which I do recommend your listeners watch. It's a a pretty enjoyable film if you like um, fantasy. Um, So uh, I realized I didn't want to spend too much more time working on these uh, editorial supplements, although it was quite an impressive operation, I have to say, because it was totally funded by advertising, print advertising, and I think it still is which is an impressive achievement. And actually, this was just around the time of the 2008-2009 uh, crash, and they still managed to push on through and survive just on print advertising. So it was an, an impressive operation, you know, mainly salespeople hammering the phones all the time and uh, me writing these sort of little pieces of editorial and stuff that I didn't really know anything about. Um, actually, it reminds me, if you're interested in that world, there's a very funny book called... London in the Southeast, I don't know if you've heard of that, by David Saloy or David Saleh. He's a, a British-Hungarian writer. It's probably I've the funniest of book I've ever read. Yeah. And it's actually sort of about that kind of editorial sales world. And funny enough, the, the company the main character works for in that is uh, based very near where I'm sitting right now, um, that set in Hoban in uh, London, near the British Museum in London. And actually, there's a scene in it where the main character parks his car on Little Russell Street, which is where the LRB office is, um, which is a very small street. Anyway, I recommend that book, it's, it's incredibly funny. Um, anyway, that was the sort of world that was, I sort of felt that I didn't really want to work in that too much longer, though I found it, you know, very educational and very interesting to work there. Um, and uh, so then I got a job at Faber and Faber, um, the you know literary publisher um, uh, based in Bloomsbury. And I got a job there working on this project they were doing called drama online, which, uh, basically about putting all their plays online in a joint project with Bloomsbury. Um, so between them, Bloomsbury and Faber published a lot of plays, including from Bloomsbury, the art and Shakespeare, um, and just, you know, a whole suite of the best modern drama from Faber and Bloomsbury. Anyway, they were, uh, doing this enormous project of creating this uh, sort of subscription site ready for academic institutions to be able to access all their plays um in a really usable way where they could filter through characters and um everything would be formatted exactly as the playwright wanted you know um it's a very ambitious project and the job I got there was basically working in the XML and um, you know XML is a markup language it's basically just sort of data which is then used to uh, create the website. Um I didn't know anything about XML, but I did know about plays. And you can learn the basics of XML quite uh, easily. And um so basically I was just going through it was QA work basically, just going through XML and checking that the way that data was presented was going to result in the way the play, the playwrights or the, the published work wanted it to be presented. Um, which was actually <laughs> very complicated because plays do not have a set layout, you know, like a novel um, or even novels don't, but you know, it's more standardized than for plays. Plays are totally unstandardized, really. Playwrights basically treat it like a score, many of them do, where they want to give as much instruction through the way it's laid out on the page as to how the play is to be performed as possible. Um, you know, some you know I have plays you have plays which don't even have any characters. Or character names in them or or uh you know you have a martin crimp play or a, a sarah kane play or something then um you know you the layout is incredibly eccentric often um so the challenge there was was how to how to describe that in pure data so that it could be then formatted successfully and usably on a on, on a screen, essentially. I think the hardest one we did, I worked on was there's this play called The Trackers of Oxyrhynchus by Tony Harrison, which is absolutely wild play about um, uh, these the people who discovered the Oxyrhynchus papyri in Egypt in the late 19th century, I think. And anyway, the play involves those characters, those um, the, the people who found the papyri basically in a sort of ancient rubbish tip and the and the papyri contained these these incredible scraps of plays by Sophocles and uh, Euripides and um, but just little scraps right and so the play consists of scraps the scraps of these plays are performed by the the people who discovered them in this this kind of um, they basically sort of characters within characters and the way it's notated on the page is incredibly complicated. Um, so, uh, so that had to be put into XML. Um, so that was fascinating, but just a short-term project. And then, because Bloomsbury was doing the same thing, uh, I then moved from Favour to Bloomsbury and carried it on work carried on working on Drama on, Drama Online, uh, mainly on the Arden Shakespeare stuff, which was the most challenging, really, to convert into XML. Because you know, Arden Shakespeare editions are like heavily an- annotated. And often annotations, sort of within annotations, and uh, you know, um, so it required a lot of sort of fiddling around with the XML to put like annotations. And, and and Shakespeare himself, obviously, there was no standardized way for him to lay out plays either. I mean, he didn't; he wasn't really involved in that. You might have, you know, there's lots of debate about in some Shakespeare plays whether characters with different names are actually the same character, or whether Shakespeare, in, you know, this kind of stuff. So a lot of, a lot of stuff to work around when. You know, the data requires you to be very specific about what everything is. Anyway, so I worked on uh, a drama online at Bloomsbury for a while and then uh, saw a job advertised at the LRB in the production departments, And I thought, that looks good. I love the LRB. Um, uh, I'd love to work there. And I got a job here. Um, And it was only then really that coming here that I sensed the opportunity to develop this sort of video and audio work because it was something that wasn't that well developed yet at the LRB. There was certainly some interest in experimenting with these things, but no real, I mean, there was no one really at the time or particularly the interest to really take it on. And I think this is often true in small companies. There are things that the company might well want to do, but it really requires someone to take it on. And even if they don't really know much about it, Just to think, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm interested in this. I will happily take this on and push it.
0: Um, what year was that when you started and what was your, your role then?
1: So it was, um, 2013, 14, yeah. Nine years ago, I think. Yeah. And I was a digital production assistant, I'd say. Um, and sort of one of the first things I did was um, initially think about the video stuff so for example the lrb had a youtube channel but it only had 47 subscribers and it had just three little videos on there which were event videos um and there were lots of other bits of video lying around that have been filmed of events and this and that thing but just no one had had really the time to do anything with them so i thought okay let's just try and just build that youtube channel you know just for starters and just use everything we already have build that and then then I just made it a project, really, to just start making things, that simple things that we could just build out the YouTube channel with and to start learning how to do this stuff, you know. And these might just be little interviews with writers about their piece or um, pieces um, or more events. Um, the LRB has this uh, series of lectures every year called the Winter Lectures, um, where we ask people like, you know, Mary Beard, Adam Tooze. Patricia Lockwood, lots of our main writers to deliver a lecture on something that they're interested in. And so we would film those and put those on there and it's just about, you know, it just felt like the important thing was just to build up stuff and just to do it and to start learning what we could produce as a company. Cause I think that's the, the main challenge with audio and video is you can get maybe too distracted by what other people are doing. And if you feel like it's useful, can be useful to your company, then I think it's better to look at what you can do, what you feel you can do as a company, you know, what do you have to say really? Um, And who within the company actually has the interest and the sort of staying power really to make it work. Um, So that's sort of where the passion for me came from, I guess, was just seeing the opportunity and that I felt that it could make a difference for the LRB. And that it's sort of something that just needed to be worked on and persevered with. And I was, you know, willing to, to do that. And, and thankfully the LRB was willing to give me the, the freedom to do that and, and to develop it. Um, you know, the, the editor at the time, Mary Kay Wilmers, who was a long-time editor of the LRB and stood, uh, she retired a couple of years ago. She was, you know, quite happy for people to experiment with things. I mean, she wasn't particularly interested in all that stuff. She's she very focused on editing the paper. Um, and, you know, she didn't necessarily like all of it, but she was, you know, anything that was, that might help to bring people to the paper, to bring new readers, you know, she'd be in favor of that. So this was, you know, just seemed like a, a great opportunity to try and make a difference. And I'd say it's taken quite a long time to work out how much of a difference it makes or what makes a difference. And, and that, that's always changing as well, because it's so dependent on the technology you have available. Um, I mean the, the platforms on which you're you're putting stuff. Um but it yeah, it started with the video stuff. Um not so much the podcast to that time. That's become much more of a part of what we do in sort of the last three years, I would say. Really driven by by COVID, I would say largely. Um that has been a a massive driver in the stuff that we've done. Um so when I arrived at the LRB, there was a podcast and it was an occasional thing, uh, mainly of, well, entirely of writers reading their pieces or bits of their pieces, um, which has a lot of value. But I think it was seen more as an archival thing, like it was really good to get these voices down sort of just for an archival, uh, for you know, for people's interests. Um, uh, and then we... But I think there was a strong feeling within the LRB, LRB this, particularly as podcasts becoming much more of a thing, than that you know discussion podcasts was something that we could and should do. That actually fitted really well, perhaps even more than making short films or long films. That uh, podcast discussions was something that would really fit with what the LRB did well, because we had you know we have access to a lot of interesting people who talk very well about. Um, what they do, what they're interested in, particularly academics who make a profession of talking about what they do and, and communicating it. Um, but again, for a small company, it's you, it, you know one of the big challenges is like how much can you really commit to? you know you think, well, for podcasts to work, they do need to be regular. Probably they do you know weekly podcasts ideally. Um, do we have the capacity to do that? Can we actually feed that into our workflow, which is geared so much towards producing uh, the magazine every two weeks? Um, and, and that you know that is the focus of the company. Um, so we sort of experimented with different discussions, just trying to work out what the sorts of things we talk about. Um, and one thing we alighted on, was inspired by an event we had at our bookshop i should say that we have a lot of events at our our bookshop as well which are great source of material for um not only the bookshop podcast which is its own thing which is events but also videos as well but um we, we had an event at the bookshop with two of our writers uh, Seamus perry and mark ford uh, about one of mark ford's books uh, which is about thomas hardy and we felt they had a really good rapport um, the discussion was great. And uh, as my colleague, actually, uh, Sam Kinchin Smith, I remember, who's the head of special projects the LRB, he thought that they could do a great series together, sort of on that theme. Um, so that was the first serious jump into doing sort of discussion podcasts. And we created this series called Close Readings, which was Seamus Perry and Mark Ford talking about. 19th and 20th century poets um, from Emily Dickinson, Robert Frost, the niece, Gerard Manny Hopkins, and Sylvia Plath, you know, all these uh, key poets. And, and that was really popular, but it wasn't so regular, so it was sort of dependent on, on when they were available to do it. But eventually we built up like two, 10 episode series of these things. Um, mm-hmm. And then COVID came. And it came at a time when we were still thinking a lot about like, you know, how could we make a weekly podcast? You know, is this something that we could really do? Um, do we have the capacity to do it? And when COVID came, it suddenly seemed like this was a an important time to be developing the way we communicate with our readers, right? Um, particularly just about COVID, actually. Um, and I remember the first first episode we did of what i'd now think of as the lrb podcast which is a weekly podcast was with rupert beale who, who who works at the Francis crick institute as a virologist and he wrote quite a lot of pieces for us about covid during the pandemic during the lockdown and the first one first episode in our sort of weekly launch um was with him and and then we did quite a lot of episodes with him then throughout the the two years that, or more, really, that we were dealing with COVID. Um, and, but then we thought we should do other, you know, other discussions as well. And, and it really just developed, you know, it, it just seemed like a good opportunity because technologically it was possible. And also everyone was sort of at home in one place. So it was quite easy to get hold of people and get them to talk, um, and um, and that's when we sort of established one of our regular hosts, uh, Thomas Jones, who's on the editorial team, and he's actually based in Italy anyway, so he's remote. Um, and the technology available, as I'm sure you know and everyone knows, developed incredibly fast. I mean, it seemed like it must have been sort of developing anyway, but the technology for communicating recording stuff remotely developed really fast during COVID, and that really opened the opportunity to, for us to to have the freedom to talk to our writers about what they were interested in, what they'd written about because a lot of them are all over the world. It really wouldn't have been possible to do this without these technological developments. And so it just, it just sort of evolved naturally. And it, it seems obvious now that, um, that our podcast would consist of talking to our writers about what they've written about, but it, you know, how we would do that didn't seem so obvious until the opportunity came and it's, it suddenly felt like a need, like, uh, you know, we, we need to be communicating in this different way. Um, so that's how sort of podcast developed, a child of the pandemic, really.
0: You you got into it a little bit, um, but I was wondering if you talk about the process of creating audio and video content. You know, how do you how do you decide uh, what should be recorded, uh, what will go up, or or you know when you have an idea for a podcast series or a, uh, a particular show. How does that come about? What are the processes and steps that you take uh, to producing it?
1: Okay, so, well, we have several podcasts at the moment, really. We have the LRB podcast, which is a weekly podcast attached to the paper. There's our bookshop podcast, which is just recorded events from the bookshop. And then there's Close Readings, which is our new subscription podcast, which is based on what I described earlier, the Seamus Perry, Mark Ford thing. And that is three episodes a month. I can explain a bit more about that in a bit. But um, for the LRB podcast, we think of that in in a two-week cycle, essentially, which is exactly how we think of the paper, which comes out every two weeks. And in the first week in the two-week cycle, we will have uh, a discussion with a writer who's written something in the latest issue about that piece. So this week we had uh, discussion with Daniel Cohen, uh, who's also happens as one of the editors, of the LRB, about a piece he wrote on Spotify. Um, so that was, uh, that was this week's, um, uh, sort of uh, issue based podcast. Um, and then on the other week we'll have something else. Now it might, it might be another discussion with someone if, if it, the issue seems like it particularly lends itself to that, but I mean, in. In terms of deciding who we talk to from each issue, well, it sort of depends on what feels like a good subject for a podcast. I mean, it's generally almost always about nonfiction um, and, or an essay or a political essay, or it will lean heavily towards stuff that's very topical. So we've had a few uh, episodes with James Meek about his reporting on uh, on Ukraine. Um, we have sort of regular discussions with one of our contributing editors, James Butler about British politics. Um, so the topic will lean towards stuff that is relevant to the moment. Um, and then for the off week ones, one thing we've been trying to do recently is reserve those slots for a mini series, essentially a mini series of four episodes that will play out over eight weeks every other week, and we've done uh, several of those now. We did one with uh, Mary Wellesley and Irina Dimitrescu on Medieval Women, um, which was about four medieval women, uh, Marjorie Kemp, Julian Norwich, and The Wife of Bath, It's is obviously fictional, um, and uh, Mary of Egypt. And that was quite popular, actually, and one of the episodes was syndicated a couple of times on Canadian radio. We did another one of those recently with me and Christ, who is one of our uh, writers about climate change um, called, Climax Poli- called Climate Politics and Procreation, which is really about reproductive justice and population control and the history of population control. And ultimately one of the main points is making is why population control is not um, a solution to climate change. Uh, and in fact, it just, you know, adversity affects People um, uh, adversity affects certain people in society um, and we've got another one coming up with uh, Rosemary Hill who's one of our, another one of our contributing editors about Stonehenge and the way people have thought about Stonehenge over the years over the centuries I should say um, from you know the 17th century up to the present day and that's based on a book she wrote many years ago about Stonehenge um, so it's really those are really driven by what our writers are really interested in and feel like they have something to talk about. And, you know, we come up with those ideas really by just talking amongst ourselves all the time about, you know, what could make a good series, mini series episode and talking to our writers about what they're interested in. And it's, it's really got to be driven by what they want to say, I would say, and the conversations they want to have. It's, I guess that's more, it's, it's the conversations they want to have, people they want to talk to. Um, I think that's what makes for a good podcast.
0: Yeah. I, I, you know, with some of those in mind, some of those upcoming projects, um, and also picking up on something that you mentioned earlier, uh, about how, you know, you were, when you first came on, you were sort of pushing this and maybe, uh, people were, were into the idea of, uh, audio and video content, uh, being explored, but maybe, uh, skeptical, uh, you know just w- what role do you see audio and video and content playing in the future of publishing uh in this sort of general literary industry uh and how do you see london review of books as either you know leading this charge or adapting to the changes
1: well i think it's so driven by what the, the platforms want this is this nightmare really of producing particularly video audio is more free in a way what you produce but if you're talking about, what we're essentially talking about is content marketing in a way. Um, for publishers, it's like, how do you reach people? And obviously platforms like Instagram, TikTok, Facebook are extremely effective at reaching people if you do it in the right way. Um, and I know TikTok is extremely important for many publishers in reaching readers, and it can have a huge impact on book sales but thinking more from the magazine publishing world i think the challenge is thinking about this stuff as content marketing um when basically you're producing content anyway right you're a, that's what you do so you're quite different from a company like you know a car company say and it's i think it's easy to get distracted by concepts of content marketing which perhaps don't apply to to any kind of company so for example when i first started making uh short form videos which i thought would be really useful for us on facebook and um this was back quite a few years ago now when lots of people talk about the sort of pivot to video that happened back then lots of companies um invested huge amounts in video because it seemed like facebook and youtube of course wanted this stuff and it was a bit of a false start then, I think. In fact, I think the phrase pivot to video is sort of a euphemism now, really, for just hitting something. Um, so we experimented with that. I made a lot of little videos, and but Facebook kept on changing the parameters. They wanted like, you know, 60-second videos, and they thought, no, it's got to be three minutes. And, and eventually, I think people just tired, well, certainly we did, tired of having to adapt ourselves the whole time to what this platform wanted. Um, but that's always going to be the case. But I think since TikTok became such a big thing, um, video now has, is so much more established as, as a way, as a marketing tool, a content marketing tool. But as I said, I think thinking about it as content marketing for a magazine publisher, at least is a mistake. I think you, you, for us anyway, it's just thinking about how you project things you're doing in the best way at that moment. Um and having the capability in place to exploit what's there at any moment. And that's uh, annoyingly just gonna involve constant experimentation. So I don't think we, you know, we haven't really found a great way of making short form video work for us. What I found on our YouTube channel is that people actually prefer longer things of what we do. So um, so I've produced quite long things for YouTube. And I would have to say YouTube is my by far my favorite platform is sort of unbeatable really and the the freedom it gives you and um and and the way it allows you to reach people just in an ongoing way just through the way youtube works as a search engine and um so i think so video wise it's hard to predict exactly what place it will hold for publishers other than it will hold a big place and um yeah and I think the only way to deal with it is just to just abandon yourself to relentless, uh, experimentation and adapt adaptation, really to what these platforms seem to want, because it's really hard to work against them. You know, you can't really work against what Instagram or TikTok are asking you to do. Uh, we don't have a TikTok account by the way, but, um, um there's something we've thought about for about five seconds, but we realized it's sort of not yet for us, I would say, um. Uh, Audio-wise, it's quite different. Um, I think the future is sort of more obvious, which is, for magazine publishers anyway, that that people are prepared to pay for stuff that they are interested in and for a world they want to enter into for an hour a day or a week or whatever. Um, And that's certainly what's driven our subscription podcast, Close Readings, which, as I say, was based on that Mark Ford, James Perry series we did uh, previously, but we've sort of formalized that now into this, Um, this podcast which is actually several podcasts within a podcast so if you sign up for our close reading subscription you access three different series um, which are one of them is about medieval literature with Mary Wells and Irina Tim who I mentioned earlier did that short series for us one is with Seamus Perry and Mark Ford doing a version of what they did before and one is uh, with Emily Wilson and Thomas Jones about classical literature and Each one of those uh, series is 12 episodes long, one episode released each month. And if you sign up for $4.99 a month, um, then you access all of that. And so far that's been um, really popular, actually. We've been really pleased. And that that just launched in January. Um, And that's sort of convinced me that now the technology is there and the appetite is there. You sort of need both to come together where people are willing to try paying for podcasts that they really feel interested in and they might just try it and not like it. Um, but the opportunity is there for publishers to really experiment with that. I mean, we, we, we use a platform called supporting cast, which I think quite a lot of uh, podcasts used to, um, to sell subscription podcasts. Um, but this technology wasn't really there, uh, <laughs> until very recently. I mean, you, you know, there's that masterclass, um, thing where, you know, Serena Williams teaches you tennis and that kind of stuff, um, which is a really impressive thing they've created there. And I've certainly signed up for it, um, before and enjoyed it very much. Um, Same. Uh, sorry.
0: I also signed up for it at one point in time and then yeah, I watched the classes that I wanted to watch. And then
1: I. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. And I think, I mean, my, you know, my vision for close readings is that it's sort of like masterclass, but not audio. And it's really focused on literature, specific texts, and um, that will take you through a period of literature with, you know, hopefully um, people that you enjoy spending time with. Um, and, that you know, we're just going to keep building the library there. And so essentially the subscription gets like as with masterclass gets sort of better and better value. Um, and i think that's a big part of the future for magazine publishers um i think you know lots of them are already uh well advanced with this companies like slate of course um and yeah that's
0: really is what there say on that. is there any uh, particular advice that you would give to someone who's interested in pursuing a career in audio and video production uh specifically uh in the type of, of world that you're in, not necessarily someone that wants to go and do audio and video production for, you know, I don't know if uh, you have this in the UK Barstool Sports or something like that. No, not that. What is that? Uh, it's like, um, I kind of, it, it's kind of taken the domain of like, or of like America's Funniest Home Videos where it's like kind of entertainment. Uh, it's just like sports entertainment basically, um, but they had like an extremely... Uh, well-run audio and video campaign that uh made them very popular and then they sold the company for like hundreds of millions of dollars. Um but yeah maybe uh, it's kind of on the on the low lower brow end of uh audio and video production as opposed to LRB, which I think is trying to, you know, oftentimes is facilitating um conversation that Is either about things on the news that are a bit more in depth than like you might get from just your standard, you know, news television show, um, or something that is going to deal with literature in a way that you won't be able to see it even in something like, you know, The Times. Mm.
1: Well, I think although you've asked specifically about this world, I think the same lessons probably apply to any companies really, which is that I think it's really worth trying to find out what companies need at this particular moment. And that need will probably change quite quickly. Um, you know, a lot of technology need and technology technology knowledge that's needed in companies, which is very hard for people to keep up with, um, but I'd recommend If there's a company you really like what they're doing then it's worth getting into you know just trying to have a conversation someone there and just finding out what they need you might not be able to offer it at the moment but um but once you have a sense of what sort of skills people need you know they might be doing some kind of big podcast project where they just need people to edit audio they need people to process that stuff or be involved in some way or they might need people to do some research on the project Um, and there's, you know, I feel like particularly in small companies, there's, there's lots of these kinds of projects, which often have particular needs and, um, it can be very hard to, to satisfy those, um, uh, just within what you already have. And then you, you know, you might think, God, I just really need someone to do this right now. And it's quite hard to find that. Um, so trying to keep on touch with what companies need and never be afraid to contact people there and to just ask to, to talk to them because I think people generally are very happy to talk about their work, um, you know, if they have time. But I think, you know, people just usually feel flattered, right, and ask, them, say, like, I really like what your company does. I'd be interested to know how you do it and what, you know, what needs you have. Um, they're not always going to have stuff to offer you, but I think just trying to keep on top of that, because I think what maybe you learn on a sort of training course or at university is not going to be exactly what you then find is needed in in the workplace. Um, and sort of getting on top of what that is going to what that is uh, is, I think, uh, definitely worthwhile spending time on.
0: Are there any uh, new developments that we can expect to see from the London Review of Books, uh, specifically in terms of audio and video? Uh, like, for example, will Talking Politics ever come back?
1: Oh, well, uh, you've asked a good question there because we have just started a new podcast in partnership with David Runciman. I should say it's not. it's We're supporting it, and um, but it's, it's his, his podcast, but it's not called Talking Politics. Um, it's now called Past, Present, Future, and it's just launched two weeks ago. So Runciman is back. Uh, it's not just about politics. It's about the history of ideas, past, present, and future. Um, I think the, fir- the first episode was with Ian McEwen talking about an Italo Calvino novel, which Ian McEwen thought was the best political novel he'd ever read. And last week was an episode with Helen Thompson, who was a regular on uh, talking politics' we're a co-host of talking politics and she was talking about uh how the TV program Dallas uh, explains everything about oil the oil industry and the next episode is about uh communism and you know could communism ever have or work could communism ever work or could it have worked um so yeah it's a lot broader than talking politics I think David was a bit uh, tired of following the news mill I think that became exhausting particularly as there's just so much news uh and just goes on and on all the sort of madness it seems of the political world so he wants to do something which was broader and more reflective so it's back so i would urge your listeners to go and find it um in your preferred podcast app um and also i should say go and find close readings as well because there's exciting things with that coming up because we'll be yeah, at some point this year, announcing this the series for next year. And so I'd be very interested to hear what any of your listeners think of it. If they're interested in it, you know, they could write to us and tell us what they think because it's very much a work in progress.
0: Yeah, no, I should definitely add to any listeners if they haven't checked out the LRB's podcast or just the LRB in general, um, it would be surprising to me based on, uh, you know, my picture of the new book's listener, my mind, that um, they, they Haven't heard of the LRB, uh, but I definitely think that listeners would find the exact type of content that they would be looking for. Um, and you know, very well produced, uh, you know, the best produced stuff that you can get for literary content. Uh, well, thank you, Anthony. Thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. It was great speaking with you. Um, you, you've, you've given me personally a lot of good recommendations to check out, so. Um, I certainly will have my, my, my next couple of weeks filled, uh, with, with some movies, um, (laughs) and yeah, thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you, Caleb. It's been a pleasure.